Welcome to the podcast. My name is Natalie, and it is just me here today, but I am joined by Doug Meyer. Hello. Hey, how are you? Doing well. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. It's a kind of a sunny day here in New York. Oh, nice. Glad to hear that. It's been very warm here in California, almost a little too warm. (laughs) Thank you for joining us, and we'll kind of jump right in with you introducing yourself and telling our listeners a little bit about you. Okay. I always find it a difficult thing to talk about who I am and what I do because I do so many different things. But uh, So I'm an artist, a designer. um, I do site-specific installations and a ton of different things. In the, in the past, I was in um, publishing. I was um, design and art directors for various media magazines and outlets. And, oh, my gosh, I've, I've, I've just kind of done so many things, and I still do do a lot of these things, and they all kind of get incorporated into my work. But I'm really excited you guys are doing this podcast because I think that the gist of it is is to be talking about this new book I have coming out called Heroes of Tribute, which is a, a project that I worked on for – about two and a half years, which is a, it started out as an exhibition that traveled from New York to Miami and Los Angeles, and then it was turned into a book. And it is a sort of a celebration and a tribute to some of the 50 first creatives who died of AIDS. And I'm very excited because the book just came out the day before yesterday on the 4th. So it's now, oh. um, it's now on sale and people can buy it. So, um, oh, that's awesome. I didn't realize that it wasn't out yet. So that is very cool. I have a copy right in front of me. It's gorgeous. So listeners, I'll post pictures and they can kind of get an idea of what we're talking about here. And just to give a little background to them on heroes, it all kind of started out of a fundraiser dinner that you were invited to decorate or host. Well, it, it was more than a dinner or whatever. They're, they, they've been doing this yeah. for years. It, it's DIFA, which is the Design Industry Foundation for Fighting AIDS. And mm-hmm. they do these things. They're called Dining by Design, these events. And they do them in various cities throughout the United States. And they're huge fundraisers. And the one in New York is obviously the oldest one. And it's the one that's always continued because some cities, they've done it for a few years and they go to another city. But it they invite different organizations, publications, designers to create spaces. And I was asked, it was in 2014, by a woman named Pam Jacarina, who's the editor-in-chief of Lux Magazine, if I would do their space. And she, I've known Pam for a long time. She's she's really great. And she said, you know, would you be able to do this? And I'm like, uh, I gotta kind of got to think about it. Because for me, those kind of events, they, they really drive me crazy because it, it seems they're all driven by... Uh, you know, cocktails and dinners and, and mm-hmm. all this. And, and, and the DIFA events, they last, they're up for about a week and a half. I think it's a week and a half. In New York, it's in conjunction with the Architectural um, Digest Home Show. So they're at the piers. And so one of the piers is just all the, the DIFA event, the, the dining by design. And mm-hmm. so people come in and they, you know, they, they look at the spaces and they're all, you know, designed and decorated and kind of some are really wild and stuff. For me, the last thing I ever wanted to do was to decorate a space and just, you know, like, oh, and, and you know, everyone kind of look at it and go, oh, that's pretty. And or that's mm-hmm. interesting or whatever. So for me, when you're doing an event like this, especially for AIDS, and one of the reasons why AIDS is such a big thing for me is because I've lost so many friends to AIDS. And I, I always feel that there's a responsibility to somehow remind people 
even though, yeah, it's, 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 it's DIFA, but they're acronyms and people just don't even, oh, it's DIFA. Half yeah. the people don't even know what it stands for. So there for is me, a I little thought, bit of like a glazing over that happens in a lot of these, yeah, acronyms yeah. and it's kind of a language that's used. So. I, I yeah. know what you're talking about. Yeah, I, I like that term glazing over. <laughs> so I thought, okay, let me let me sort of think of something because I to me it's like throwing it back in your face. It's like this is why you're here. So I came up with this idea of doing a space that was really more of a like you would be walking into a museum or a gallery. And I always love going into a museum and galleries because to me it, it, it's kind of a sacred place in a way and, mm-hmm. and people become a little more hushed and there's more concentration to, to really what you're looking at. So mm-hmm. the idea was to do this gallery space. I created these vignettes and they were lined in, in navy velvet and they were beautifully lit. And I I didn't know at the time exactly when I started working on this how many I was going to do. I was going to do at least 15 to 20. I ended up doing 19, what I call the heroes. And mm-hmm. because it was the design industry, I felt it was really important to make it heavy on architects, fashion designers, as well as interior designers who had some of the early people that had passed away. Because mm-hmm. for me, so many people that are young, and when I say young, I mean people that are 35 and under, had no idea who any of these people were. And they were these people that were in their profession and field that kind of paved the way in a lot of ways and were very, what's the word I'm I'm thinking? Oh, God, I'm having a brain fart here. Um, These were really kind of pioneers in Mm -hmm. in their fields. And they kind of laid the groundwork for what these people do now. And I really just felt it was important, especially I, I love that you all are the history babes, because to me, history is very, very important, especially in art. And you kind of need to know art or design or architecture, whatever. You have to have the foundations of knowing the history of something. And it was really interesting. There was, you know, like I would say, cocktail parties and dinners. So they do these these various cocktail parties and a big dinner at these events. And the night of the big dinner, where you have all the hoozy wetsuits and everything there, it was really interesting. I was walking around and I came back into the space and it was kind of amazing. Like every single person who was a big hoozy wetsuit that was actually at the event, and there were hundreds of people at this thing, were in the space. And they were all just kind of like really quiet and just looking at the hero's sculptures mm-hmm. and reading because each exhibition accompanied the um, actual obituaries, whether they were from the New York Times or the Los Angeles Times of, of each hero. And then there was a little more didactic information. And then there was a, a wall panel that just kind of explained what this was about. And there were people in there crying and people coming up to me and saying, oh, my God, thank you for doing this. And it was it was very powerful. And I was like, wow. Um, I mean, it was what I wanted to happen. But I didn't, you know, when you, just because you yeah. want something to happen doesn't mean it's going to happen. So, and even that evening, I was approached by several people that said, you know, we should take this somewhere else now. And I was like, okay, okay. And then I, I sat on it for a few weeks. And at one point during that time period, I was, I'd flown down to Miami for, um, for, doing some project. I can't remember what it was. An old friend of mine, um, we had drinks and we said we were just going to have one glass of wine because we hadn't eaten or anything. And she has a gallery space down there. Her name is Nisi Berriman. So we just started having one glass of wine and that God knows that literally, I think we had two bottles of wine and we had, we had no food. And during that, that drinking, she said, you know, why don't you expand this and make a lot more heroes? And then she goes, I'll show it here in Miami. And I started thinking, and then I'm like, okay. So then I, I can't remember if I emailed or text. And then I, I sent an 
whichever email or text to Liz O'Brien, who has a space in New York, who's this amazing dealer. And then one to another dealer I know in Los Angeles, Patrick Dragonette. And they both said yes, like right away. So it was just kind of like, oh, mm-hmm. God, I'm drunk and I've committed myself to doing this. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I was just like, okay, that's great. So I really was committed at this point now. And for me, I think a lot of people are this way too. Number one, I work best at the last minute and under pressure. And also mm-hmm. when I have a kind of a goal or, or an assignment to do. So that meant that I really now had to figure out who else I was going to choose. and. It took me months to really just come up with a list because you're doing so much research and, and there's so, unfortunately, there are so many people that you can, I could do. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask about that because you ended up narrowing the total list to 48 or is it 49? Yeah. 48. Well, it, it's, it's 48 and then there was a special limited <laughs> edition, Jack Smith, who was kind of the oh. grandfather of, of performance art. And so, so yeah, so it was kind of a, a crazy thing to undertake in a way of, of just really deciding who to choose. And I, I just made list and list. And I also, in the back of the book, there's a section called the notebook. Mm-hmm. which has photographic images of, of spreads from this notebook that I had. And I would carry this notebook with me once I started doing this and I would just do drawings and insert photographs or whatever memorabilia from various people that I was thinking of doing. And then I'd start doing these kind of wild little portraits of them. And it really helped me to figure out who I was going to do and how I was going to portray them. Because another thing that I wanted to do when I did this and when I started with the first 19, is when when people saw the the heroes, I didn't want it to be all stylistically like it came from one artist's hand. I wanted mm-hmm. people to, to look at this and not think about, you know, the way that they were created in a way. I, I just wanted them to look at each individual piece and then actually think about and understand or learn about who this person was. And a lot of the elements that are used in creating these heroes or these portraits were reflective of, in, in some way, sometimes, of who they were and what they did, mm-hmm. as well as the titles of each piece, too. So there's, you know, there's a lot of elements going on. In that, and I also had a soundtrack that was on repeat in, in full length, it was like almost two and a half hours. I, I had a friend of mine who's a DJ and I gave him a list of who I, I was doing and what I wanted songs or interviews or whatever I wanted from certain people. But then he just kind of went with it and he did a, a phenomenal job. I mean, he just did amazing, amazing research and I was absolutely thrilled with, with the outcome. So it was like, for me, it was, it was also that creates more this whole installation thing where it's this, Mm -hmm. you know, it's dealing with a lot of, you know, senses and things when you're looking at this and becomes also subliminal in a way too, when you're going in the space and you hear either an interview or songs from that period. And, and then there's obviously with in the exhibition with the obituaries, there was also the playlist as well and explaining, you know, which song and, and, who did it and a little history about that also. Yeah. So you just talked about a lot of things that I want to get to. I know. So I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, perfect. I'm so glad. I just want to like go through and like individually talk about all those things because there are a lot of things that I definitely wanted to go into more detail about, like the notebook, because I really liked that you included that. I took art classes throughout high school and into college and having a sketchbook and having a sketchbook that acted as a notebook too and was kind of like a like a diary of sorts and would 
come with me everywhere and just be a receptacle for whatever was so important and such a it was a skill I'm really glad that I learned. So I wanted you to talk about that and including that and how that helped your process because you're obviously biting off a lot here. Even just choosing how to represent these individuals all stylistically differently because you did and it's a cohesive body of work. It really is. They look really well together, but they are all very unique and stylistically diverse. So I'm imagining the notebook had a huge hand in that. And I just wanted you to maybe talk about that a little more for some of our artist listeners. We have a lot of young artists who kind of like to get ideas and advice on things like that. Well, I've always, ever since I went to Parsons School of Design, when it was mm-hmm. I think, referred to as Parsons School of Design, I don't know how it's referred to now. I know it's, you know, it's part of the new school and everything. But um, ever since, I think almost from day one, I had a notebook. I have various sizes of notebooks. Some are really small that I can just throw in my backpack. And some, depending on, like, the Heroes Notebook was kind of big. It was like 10 by 15. And it's... I would think maybe a lot of a lot of your listeners too are, are probably the same way. I think when you're an artist or whatever, you have so much crap going on in your head, and you have mm-hmm. so many ideas. You you sometimes think, okay, that's an idea, and you'll remember it. But if you don't write it down or just do a little sketch of it or whatever it may be, you're going to forget about it. And it might have been like a really amazing idea. And right. it's kind of like it's kind of an interesting way for me. It's kind of like what Instagram is because there's so many amazing things on Instagram. So many weird things, but so many amazing things. And I just I literally just save so much stuff because it, at least when I'm doing that, I don't have to write something down. I can go back and reference it again. But mm-hmm. to me, so much of, of what a notebook is, it, it's several things. It's, it's a it's a great kind of archive and reference piece that you have of your work and thoughts and. The other thing, too, is it really helps you when you actually either write or draw or paint or whatever in your notebook what you're working on. And it it helps you work through and makes you, at least for me and especially for this project, when I'm working on a drawing or a sketch or something of somebody, say it was, you know, Halston or Sam Wagstaff or Lee Bowery or whatever, you, you really start thinking about that person and that individual. And it helps me get in sort of a mindset of who these people were. Mm -hmm. So when I would be doing more research, even though like, like I knew Lee Bowery was actually the very first one I did. And mm-hmm. I always knew that I wanted to do a portrait or a sculpture of him. And I mean, he was, he was easy, but really hard because there were so many ways to portray him because he was just an absolute genius at creating these kind of looks for himself and not just his face, his entire body. He was really easy. Some were like incredibly difficult because I just, you know, I would work on something and it just was awful. And I would just, and you know, when something's really bad and you keep mm-hmm. working on it, it just gets worse and worse. <laughs> so and frustrating. More, yes. And you get more and more frustrated. So it's just like, oh God. So then you like, okay, you, you kind of trash that and then you start thinking about it again and you work on other things and then you go back to it and you start another thing. And then one of the most difficult ones I had doing was Alvin Ailey. And I had literally done three and every single one of them I hated. I mean, they were just, you know, one was worse than the next. And I just kind of mangled them up and one I threw across the room and broke, broke some glass on a picture. And because <clears throat> I was just really like, <laughs> oh my God. And then yeah. <clears throat> when I did that, it was, I think it was three or four days before the opening of the New York show at, at Liz O'Brien. And I was like, oh my God, because I really wanted, I felt that Alvin Ailey was a really important figure to be in, in the group. And it's one of those things too, I think I mentioned earlier, is like, you know, I work better under pressure sometimes. 
and mm-hmm. under a deadline. So that evening I went to bed and then it, you know how stuff just comes to you. Yeah. It just kind of, it just kind of came to me and I'm like, okay. So I've always had like collections of weird things. So I had all these building blocks and in a box and I started thinking of them and started thinking about Alvin Ailey's dance. And for me, that kind of modern dance can be very, very architectural and structural and all about balance and things. So I thought, okay, so the way I was going to portray him then was to take these building blocks and create these weird kind of little sculptures that were about balance. And so I set them up on seamless color paper, various colors, and then I used my iPhone and I photographed them before they kind of like tipped over. And then I take them into Photoshop. And then I'm all about kind of color and odd combinations and weird mixtures, but something that is in the end quite beautiful, hopefully. And I always love the colors of 60s faded magazines. So I wanted the colors in this to be a bit faded, that it was kind of from another moment in time in a way. But yet they're very, very abstract and very modern imagery. So I then took those, printed them on really heavy paper, and then attached them with this wild sort of material I use in all my work. It's it's this silver insulation tape that's really strong and it, it looks just like silver leaf. And so I attached them all together in the back and it, then it, it just folded up, but it made this kind of accordion that you could stand up. And the colors were, were quite beautiful, but it, it just had this rhythm and movement that to me really said Alvin Ailey. And I was like, oh my God. So literally I finished the damn <laughs> thing like, like seven hours before the show opened. <laughs> so, uh, I'm looking at it right now. No, this is a great example. And like, I like how through all the frustration and the three prior attempts, it seems like the process of the final result ended up a lot more fun in mm-hmm. the making too. Like even you saying you used your iPhone and like, it reads to me almost like a zine and I'm looking yeah. at a photograph of it so it, it might be a little different in person but i mean no it's, it actually it's, does yeah it does yeah it's really cool and it's light and it's fun and it does kind of evoke this like movement and balance i like that story of that one a lot too oh, well, good. well so okay so now i can tell you another story too so then when i was working on the first group i i wanted to do the fashion designer patrick kelly who was from mississippi mm-hmm. and he moved to paris and he became this huge 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 rage in paris this big american fashion designer he was he was African-American, and he was a star over there. And he, he was well-known here, but much more so in Europe. And I think one of the big breaks for him in the U.S. was one time on the David Letterman show, Betty Davis was a guest, and she was really old at this time. And she was wearing uh, head-to-toe Patrick Kelly, and it was just kind of – and you can Google it, actually. It's, it's mm-hmm. all over YouTube. And it's fascinating to see Betty Davis, and then she talks about Patrick Kelly, but then to see this dress and how kind of – you know, once again, it was something that hadn't been seen before, really, in, in its time period, fashion, where it was just this simple, tightish black dress with these huge, huge buttons that just went down the front that were primary color. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and this this big hat that had buttons on it and stuff. And, and one of his signatures was buttons. And so I had this, like I said, I always had these weird collections of, of crap. So I, I had this collection of all these buttons, and I figured, oh, somehow I needed to portray Patrick Kelly with these buttons. And it was probably twofold. One, I couldn't figure out what to do for the first group for the Diffa show. And then and then two, I just didn't have the time because what I ended up finally doing, and it, it was one of those things that finally came to me. I was watching um, 
I was watching some, maybe it was on 60 Minutes, you know, some old, old clip of an interview with Patrick Kelly. And so he started talking about, and I started doing more and more reading again on him. And he started talking about how he has this enormous collection of black memorabilia and how he loved gollywogs and Jemima collectibles and everything. So I was like, kind of these hmm. subversive, and, <laughs> uh, characters. Right, but, 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 but it was stuff that but he it was like a reclaiming. Loved. Yeah. And he, he collected it and he also incorporated it into his, his designs and his collection. Mm-hmm. Like his actual label was a gollywog and he would then do drawings and imprint those on fabric. And at one time before he was in an inter- interview one time and, and, and people said, you know, ask him how the NAACP felt about it. And he goes, I don't know. And he goes, actually, I really don't care. He goes, this makes me happy. So, and, and to me, when I was creating these portraits, it was all about how would that individual see this portrait? Would they mm-hmm. like it? Would it be meaningful to them in some way? Would it, in their eyes, portray them? So the idea then was to take all these buttons and then make this gollywog out of buttons. And that was my representation of Patrick Kelly. And it took forever to do. I think there was over like 760 buttons that I <laughs> used in, in this piece. And, and in the book, there's a double page spread at the back mm-hmm. side of it, which I think is quite beautiful. And then there's a, obviously a picture of the front. But it was one of those things that I felt it was really important in the exhibitions that in the introduction, I had a lot of text in this introduction, that I really talked about why I did and portrayed Patrick Kelly this way because I didn't want anyone to be offended and thinking, oh God, you know, it's politically incorrect and blah, blah, blah. But to my shock, you know, no one in any place was offended by it, thankfully, or thought it was, you know, just too off the cuff. And I recently, someone was interviewing me like last week or something and asked about this. And I, I said, you know, I was shocked by it, but then he said, but why do you think that was? And and I think one of the things was when people would come and they would see the show, it's kind of overwhelming when you see the number of people. And this is just such a small, mm-hmm. tiny number and who these people were and what they contributed and how young some of them were when they died and what they really could have done. And it was literally, it annihilated an entire generation. And so I think when people were seeing these things, they're not thinking, oh, they really are understanding the moment that they're seeing this. And it does become very hushed and they start thinking about it, I think. So that's interesting. It almost like puts into perspective and combats kind of the inclination people have right now to jump on anything as uh, (laughs) offensive. Which, you know, there are plenty of very offensive things out there, so I'm not trying to say that. But, you know, you having to worry about this is kind of an example of people wanting to get upset about things, um, wanting to get angry. And I'm not surprised that the breadth of this show put that into perspective. And I wanted to talk about something else you said, because it reminded me of a phrase you used, a lost generation, kind of borrowing the language, I think, from like World War mm-hmm. One and Two, And this idea, which is something that really interests me, I've done a lot of work in like post-World War II art and an idea of like transferable trauma and mm-hmm. what something like a loss of a generation can do to a community and to a group of people. So I just, I know that this is something that you lived through and experienced and watched and is very deeply personal. So I just wanted you to talk maybe a little bit more about why you chose that phrase and what it means to you. 
So yeah, the, yeah, that phrase was kind of the title of the little essay that I wrote mm-hmm. um, in the beginning of the book. And it, as I said, it really, it really was a, a lost generation. So this was an homage to all of these people. And you know, I, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and I knew that it was literally the day after high school I moved to New York. And Louisville is is, is and was a very interesting and. It had a lot of culture. I mean, there was a great museum, the Steve Museum. They had the Actors Theater of Louisville, where they had the Festival of American Plays. There's just a lot of cool things in Louisville. So it's not like, oh, yeah, you grew up in Kentucky, and then mm-hmm. you decided to move to New York. No, Louisville was very interesting. But as a little gay kid growing up there, I was fine until we moved again. And then I went to high school, and I didn't know anybody. And I was just treated like crap. Mm-hmm. So I could not wait. I mean, literally the whole, my, my whole high school years were just a complete blur. And it's something I would never want to relive or <laughs> go yeah. through again. So, and then when I came to New York, I went to between my junior and senior year, I went to Parsons summer school. And my brother also went to Parsons before me because there's, you know, seven years difference between us. And so I always knew that I was going to move to New York and my parents would take us up to New York. My dad had business up here. And so I always loved New York. And it was just, to me, it was just like where I needed to end up. Mm-hmm. And so the day that I moved here, it was like I'd always lived here. And so I moved to New York in, in the summer of 1977, which that dates me. Um, and when I, when I started coming up here, I started, you know, I was at Studio 54 every night. I was at Mud Club. I, cause I was this cute little thing and I think it was funny and I, I'm going to include in our post the picture of you at the very beginning, that Polaroid, cause you were adorable. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah. And I had, yeah. And I had like kind of long hair and no one had mm-hmm. long hair then. And I would just kind of like, you know, flip it around and, but yeah, it was, so New York, at the time when I moved here, it was just such a cool place. It's completely different than how it is now because there are so many parts of the city now that have just become so developed and so kind of expensive and, you know, hip, cool new areas. But at that time, I mean, like literally everything on the West side, it was prostitution central. It was like the meatpacking district was literally meatpacking. Mm-hmm. You really never went down there. I mean, there were sex clubs there and, prostitutes at night and then you know during the day it was just really gross because literally the cobblestone streets were just covered in like meat fat and it was just really kind of gross and 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 the city was very very grungy i mean it wasn't clean like it is now and there wasn't a lot of development but i kind of love that i I love things that aren't perfect or pristine so i mean living in new york at that time it was it was amazing and it was also the interesting thing too at that time Especially in New York, and I'm sure it was the same in San Francisco. It wasn't about people being gay or or anything. I mean, everyone just kind of mixed with one another, and everyone had a great time and got along, and it was it was all good. And that lasted for quite a while. And then in 1981 was the first time that there was that article in the New York Times talking about this rare disease that is hitting the gay community, and people, you know, were really freaked out. And as time went on, it became apparent that this was a very, very, you know, kind of deadly disease and people had no idea. It was not named AIDS at that point. And then early on, it was was named GRID, which was a gay-related immune deficiency. And when people got it, it truly was a death sentence. Some people would be diagnosed and then three weeks later, they would be dead. 
And then there would be other people that would, through various cocktail medicine mixtures, could survive for a, a period of time. And the sad thing is you could always, not always, but you could kind of tell if someone was sick. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, at that point, then there was the carposes, which were these, you know, carposes when they started becoming visible, like on your yeah. neck or your face or, or your hands. And, and people viewed this as like the plague and they would not. I mean, so, so the point is I'm trying to make is it once this happened, all this where everyone got along and we're hanging out together and no one cared about anything, then everything became segregated. And I mean, gay people just kind of stayed to themselves and straight people stayed away from gay people because no one knew how this was transmitted, really. A lot of people people were just scared and they were just completely freaked out. So it really, really did change. I think a lot of the the strides and everything the gay community made as far as, you know, fitting in and and, and everything. And then it it just kind of completely just separated things again. And in the early stages before there was any... um any possible way of managing the disease. I mean, people were just dying. I went to, God, in the first two and a half years, I I went to over 70 funerals. So that meant that everyone that I knew from when I was young that was gay and when I was in college and people then that I, I just knew as friends would hang out and whatever, it was just like, it was absolutely horrible. And the interesting thing, and this is, this is something just, just weird. My husband and I, we started watching, although it's been on for a few months now or been out, um, this, this new series called Pose on, um, God, I don't, I don't know if it's on HBO or Showtime or FX or whatever, but it's this amazing series with Billy Porter and the rest of the cast. I don't really know their name. And, and, and Sandra Bernhardt just came in the last two episodes of the first season. And it's totally of this time period where, you know, you, you have the, those voguing houses up in Harlem mm-hmm. and it, it talks about their families that, that, created the, the, these houses. And it, it was during the beginning of AIDS and then they just like last night, I think when I was watching one of the episodes, I just started freaking out because they were, they were in this AIDS ward and, and I just remember visiting people that I knew and it was just the most horrific thing. And, and that's another thing too that, that another reason why I wanted to do this is because I wanted people that would see this then to maybe do a little more research on that time period on the disease because now it's a completely manageable disease pretty much. And back then, it, if you had it, you were just shunned. And the interesting thing about it is with the obituaries that are in, in the book and that were in the exhibitions, there were so many that when you start reading them that you realize that they did not, and you go into the history and you read, read about that. Like, say, for example, Alvin Ailey, you know, incredibly successful artist. You know, he, he founded the Alvin Ailey Dance Company and it's still around today. And everyone in that time period was very stigmatized, meaning families. It's like, Oh my God, you know, my, my son or whatever, my God, they had AIDS. Ooh, I don't know how to deal with that. And and either family would omit it or even the person who passed away would, that would be their request to say, Mm -hmm. you know, I passed away from cancer or in, in Alvin Ailey's case, it was, uh, uh, I can't remember what the name of it is, but he asked his doctor to say that it was this strange kind of rare blood disease. Mm-hmm. So his, his mother and his brother would not be embarrassed by that. And that happened time and time again, like Robert Reed, you know, Mr. Brady from the Brady Bunch. Yeah. His original obituary did not mention anything about that, of how he died. But then 
about two weeks later there, and I can't remember who decided to do that, but then they did a reprint and said that, you know, he had died of AIDS. And it's literally, you know, if, if you get the book and each, each of the sculptures are accompanied by what we had done was we had compiled various news sources and obituaries into what we call the obituary. So it gives a clear picture of who these people were and what they contributed during their time period. And I know I'm just rambling on. No, but it's great. The interesting thing, too, about the obituaries when I started researching them is that the New York Times always did a better job, I realized, than the L.A. Times. But during this time period when people were dying so quickly, and a lot of these people were famous, but famous in communities like, you know, the gay community or some strange music world or something, but was small and they were maybe underground or avant-garde. And this is before the Internet. And it was very, very difficult. You couldn't go out and Google somebody. You You had to make phone calls and you had to track people down and even making phone calls back then was, you know, very, very difficult. People didn't have cell phones. Mm -hmm. So they kind of had to be, you know, near a phone if you're going to call. And then, you know, a lot of people didn't have voice message machines. So it was a very difficult time for people that were even writing these obituaries. And in New York, like if it was a, a fashion obituary, it was written by Carrie Donovan, who was one of the fashion writers at the New York Times. And if they were in the design world, interiors or architecture, it was Oh my God, I'm having another brain fart here. What was her name? It'll come to me. And, and, and these were people that, you know, that they knew all these people and these were their friends. Then they had to write about their death and they were doing this on a constant basis. And there were a lot of these heroes, not a lot, but there were a few of the heroes that, and that's why we did a compilation for the book here. And they weren't just a direct pull from the New York Times or, or the LA Times or wherever. It was because some of them didn't have obituaries. Like Klaus Nomi, who was, he was just an absolutely brilliant performer who no one had ever seen anything like him before. And he'd been doing this forever, but he was just kind of on the cusp of becoming really well known. And he was on the CBS morning news show one day and he would do these bizarre operas and he kind of dressed like this Terry Mugler alien. <laughs> and he was just a fascinating guy. He was from Germany. And when he got sick, everyone that knew him, either they, they were sick or they had died or he just isolated himself and he died by himself alone. Mm. He was basically penniless and there was no obituary for him. And it's fascinating when you think about it because current generations now are so influenced by what he did as performance and how he created his look and what he just did as a body of work. So someone who is now so influential back then, they were just disregarded as, as anything. And then you have another story that's kind of similar to that is the model Gia, who was yeah. considered, I guess, one of the first first supermodels and anyone out there that's maybe seen and this was god knows this was a long time ago too angelina jolie portrayed her in her life story and it was kind of like an abc movie of the week but it wasn't it was like <laughs> the theaters and stuff but um no it was actually a very good movie but how she contracted aids was she was a, a drug addict and it was through iv uh, through through needles mm -hmm. and because she was she would go in and out of rehab and then she made her final kind of comeback in a way. And Francesca Scabullo shot her for, for Cosmopolitan. But the interesting thing is if somebody Googles this for Gia and they look at the last Cosmopolitan cover. And Cosmopolitan at the time, you know, magazines just 
are unfortunately a dying breed. Looking around, I just read this morning that Traditional Home, which is not a magazine I, I read, but you know, it was been around forever. They just cease their normal publication as wow. of today, I think. Wow. Anyway, I just, that's getting off the subject. But if, if you Google Gia's last cover for Cosmo, she has this big, fluffy, long, long kind of gown on. Her arms and hands are down by her side. But what the dress does is cover the track marks on her arm because, you know, it's, it's a strapless thing. And right after that, she relapsed again. And then she was from Philadelphia or outside of Philadelphia and her parents took her in again and they were completely embarrassed by this whole thing. And then, you know, they discovered that, that she was sick. And I mean, she was literally, you know, one of the biggest models in New York and around the world at the time. And then she just kind of slipped away, went back home. Her last few months, she was a bagger in a grocery store. And it was, it was just wow. very, very sad. And then when she, and then when she passed away, her parents were so embarrassed by all this. It was, you know, she was just buried. And I believe there was some small service, but no one in New York even knew that she had died because there was no obituary or anything. So it's stories like that that just kind of, you know, go on and on. I think. Yeah. There just seemed to be like so much stigma and. <sighs> Do you feel like there still kind of is? I mean, this catalog, this show obviously is doing a lot mm-hmm. to break the stigma by just, again, talking about it, showing, I mean, showing people that like I didn't know died of AIDS. I'm sure a lot of people who would look through the catalog would have similar reactions to some of these people. Mm-hmm. I mean, we like right. knew they were artists, knew they were practicing, just didn't know their association to AIDS. And I think it's really important that you're, I, we talk a lot about on the podcast, you know, history is just made up of who we talk about. So if we're not talking about someone, they kind of get erased just by consequence. Mm -hmm. So this catalog really is doing a lot to bring people back into the mainstream who maybe slipped out of it because of all this stigma. And what is that like been like and how important is that to you? I can tell that it obviously is. That that was literally one of the driving forces that made me want to do this. Because if I hadn't come up with this idea, I would never have done anything for the DIFA event, mm-hmm. you know, back in 2015 or whatever. I, and I've done other other projects about AIDS for AIDS awareness because I, I just I just feel that it's just somebody's got to do it, and there are a lot of people that do. But I just think it's very important to just bring back the dialogue of this to people and and make them remember, or if they weren't alive during that time period, try to make them understand in some way. It was like being in a war. You can't really describe or explain how horrific it is to see, you know, people that you've known your whole life. And at the time, you know, I was in in my 20s, but still my whole life, these people that, you know, half, at least half of my life, a lot of them I knew that they're, they're gone and, and they're gone in such a, you know, such a horribly sad way. And (laughs) I'll probably be killed for saying this, but it's kind of like I can only sort of try to relate it when when Trump became president for me. And every single day, it's like one crazy event after Mm -hmm. another. And is it ever going to end? It's almost surreal. And yeah, it's completely surreal. And that that's kind of like in the last 30 years or whatever, that's the one thing that I could say is kind of loosely like this because you're just I wake up every day and I turn on CNN. I'm just in shock. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, you can't oh, imagine no, what's going to happen next. There's just no. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and every every you know they they need to change that breaking news to something else because every after every commercial breaking news breaking news and you're just like okay so so in 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 a strange way that's kind of like what it was during this AIDS war in the beginning because it literally it was always breaking news oh my god someone you know so and so has just been diagnosed so and so just died so and so is back in the hospital and it's just something that you can't wrap your mind around. Because, you know, none of us grew up during, or in the United States, we've never had a war here. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's kind of like what it was like, at least in my view. So once again, I'm rambling. No, I have no, no idea no. what your question I, I don't <laughs> either. <laughs> I'm sure we danced around it enough, but. <laughs> I'm very excited about this book because I, I think it came out so beautiful. I mean, just the design and the layout and. And I completely agree. <laughs> it, it, to me, it's a celebration. So therefore, it, we, we shot most all of the heroes on colored grounds. So it, as you're flipping through it, it's just so lively with color and these images. And, and then I tried to get as many actual photographs of the actual heroes in the book. I, I would have loved to have had more, but... Damn, you know, when you have to buy the usage rights of this uh-huh. stuff, it's, <laughs> I can see that. it's, it's crazy expensive. So I think there's maybe like 18 or 19 that are actual, you know, Freddie Mercury to Robert Reed, Rock Hudson, Tina Chow, Keith Haring, Nuria, Grace uh, photo, Liberace. great photo of Klaus Nomi that I'm looking at. Oh, Once yeah. in the it's book. And, the yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and, and the other thing too that I felt that was really important with the book is in the publisher, Traw Publishing, which is an art publishing house and they're based in Miami. They did a fantastic job with this. And one of my big things was we, it needs to be affordable because, you know, I, I hate when you see a book on oh, it's 65, 75 or whatever. So the book is 45, which I think is incredibly accessible to a lot of people. I agree. I and was actually going to comment on that. So I'm glad you said it. Because it's a beautiful book. I mean, it's an art object in itself. It's like a lovely table book, but it's also so much more because, I mean, you can tell you've really done your research. It's an educational resource for people. It's obviously a memorial. It's deeply personal in a lot of ways, and especially to certain people, I'm sure it's a lot more personal. But it's also kind of an instruction manual in a way, the way you've included how you came up with the idea from start to finish and how it all came together, the playlist, the notebook. like. It's really comprehensive so far as like what you did with heroes. So for $45. It's a, it's a bog. Yeah. It's a bog. For sure. But yeah, I mean, and the great thing too is, you know, it's available on Amazon and through the publisher trial publishing and it's being distributed worldwide by Simon and Schuster. And so I'm just thrilled that it, it's going to have such a reach now mm-hmm. that hopefully people will might, you know, like be interested and learn something and understand something a little bit more in a different way and just start maybe educating themselves on the history of this moment because it was a very dark time in the world's history, I think, when this happened. I mean, just because so many, politically so many strange things were going on. I mean, at the time when AIDS hit, the Reagans were in office and Ronald Reagan refused to even utter the word AIDS. And that, it really, really just freaked everyone out in, in, in the gay community. And 
it's like, okay, we're, we're on our own and there's no help. And, and I keep going back where well, I'm going back again to that new series called Pose because it's so well done, but it really does portray that time period and on certain levels and show what was really going on and how frightening and fearful people were. And what you see like on, in a show like that, it, it was a hundred times worse. Yeah. Cause they because have to lighten it up for TV. For, Right. That's for entertainment. But, you know, the reality is something completely different. And, and just like politically, I, I've been working on this other project that I call Angels and Villains. And it, it's really kind of a cast of characters of the, the good guys and the bad guys during the beginning of AIDS. And it's these wild kind of illustration drawings I'm doing and, and putting them in this, this bizarre kind of still life. And it's this huge piece, but doing, um, some more of the research. One of the things that I just found fascinating was in 1984, and, and AIDS started coming into, even before it was called AIDS, into the mainstream, like, beginning of 1981. And at the beginning of 1984, New York City was literally the epicenter where, where most of the infection was. And then you had San Francisco, which was probably second. And at that time, the mayor of New York was Mayor Ed Koch. And... Mary Couch was literally, you know, he was gay, but he was a complete closet mm. case. And it's always one of those interesting things when someone is a closeted person of whatever, you know, if they're gay or whatever, mm. how they treat or react to something. And during that time period, tens of thousands of New Yorkers were already infected with, with HIV. And I think it was like 860 something had died at that point, had already died. And this was in New York. And the city of New York at that time to respond to AIDS by 1984 had spent 24500 24, in response to it. And that same year in San Francisco, which had one-tenth of the population of New York, that city had spent $4.3 million. Wow. And a couple of years after that, it grew to $10 million annually a year. And there's an amazing documentary called How to Survive a Plague by David Francis that this information, a lot of other information that really kind of tells the story of this plague. And it's, it's something that I just highly recommend if someone is even interested in any of this. It's another, like Pose is a really interesting thing to see. This is another really great thing to watch as well. Perfect. I will I sound like include a- those in the notes for this episode. Yeah, that's horrifying. Repression and stigma are like just as deadly as yes, disease. Exactly. It's so frightening. Yeah, it is frightening. I know. Oof. I know. And then also, I mean, I don't know when this is going to air, but you know, I'm going to be in San Francisco. So anyone that's in San Francisco between the 24th and the 29th, I'm, I'm doing a lot of talks and actual book signings. Um, I'll be at, like the San Francisco Public Library, the Oakland Museum of Art, the Canopy Space, the book passage at Ferry Plaza. I'm doing a thing at Airbnb and the Battery Club. And there's a couple of other things, but um, I'm actually excited to be out there during Pride and stuff. Yeah, you'll have a lot of fun. I'll get this episode out before then, definitely, because I want people to be able to contact you and see you if they are around. Our listeners are very involved. They like like to talk. They like to engage. uh, They're very fun. Oh, that's cool. Well, then also in July 13th, I'm doing a big signing at the Museum of Modern Art at the design store there. So I'll be there as well on the 13th. Nice. But yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or uh, address no. before? I'm sure there is. I can <laughs> probably go on for days. But no, I, I think we hit, you know, all the kind of 
highlights and stuff. Yeah. yeah, this was nice. This is very nice. Thank you for doing this. It was really great talking to you. I really enjoyed reading Heroes and... I especially enjoyed talking to you about it. I think it's a really, really important thing you're doing here. And I've already flagged a few artists that I want us to do full episodes on that I oh, I wasn't cool. aware of. And so hopefully we can honor you and your project here by going a little bit extra in depth into some of these people. Well, fabulous. That's very cool. Well, thank you. Thank you so Thanks much. much. It's a pleasure talking to you. Really enjoyed it. You too. And uh, you have a great rest of your day. You too. Right. Thanks, Natalie. Bye, Bye-bye. All right, guys, thanks for listening. Go check out our social media. Our Instagram is Art History Babes Podcast. Our Twitter is at Art History Babes. Email is arthistorybabes at gmail.com. Go check out our friends at Art and Object. It's a website where you can get a ton of awesome arts resources, including podcasts like this one. So go visit them at artandobject.com. And go check out our YouTube. Corey's posting all sorts of creative habits videos. We have vlogs. We have episodes. There's a lot of great stuff on there. And as always, you can become a patron if you so choose. Visit our Patreon, patreon.com slash arthistorybabes, and become a patron for as low as $1 a month and get that extra content. All right, guys. Thank you so much. We appreciate you. Bye. The Art History You know, I, I, I told you before we got on, on the air here that I, I just kind of ramble, so I don't even remember what no, you're